0: Welcome to the Field Talk podcast from the Linder Farm Network. I'm your host, Dan Lemke. Exports are a vital part of the overall markets for Minnesota corn and soybeans. While domestic uses are strong for both corn and beans, global demand strongly supports commodity prices. In this Field Talk podcast, we talk with leaders from two groups charged with building those global markets. Our first guest is Jim Sutter, CEO of the U.S. Soybean Export Council. What are some of
1: the things that are most uh, exciting for you and most positive about what's going on with soybean exports? Well great, uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. So
2: we're very excited you know coming off of last year where we set a new value record uh, for. US. soy, soy exports uh, second second highest year ever from a volume perspective. We are uh, off to a good start this year. We're watching very carefully what's happening down in South America. There's a big crop there, but you know it's been a little slow coming to the market. So people have continued to come to the United States, and our focus is to continue to try and differentiate U.S. soy and make sure build a preference out there for U.S. soy. And we do that by talking about the sustainability, uh, the difference in nutritional, ca- uh, the, the nutritional profile, and then just the reliability of the U.S. soy all the way from farm through the export channels, the reliability of actually getting the product to market.
1: And I'm assuming there's always opportunities to uh, carve out new markets. Are there places that are of potential interest that folks might uh, not you know, instantly think of as markets for uh, U.S. soybean products?
2: Yes. You know, that's something we're always looking for is how do we diversify markets? Because we've got a lot of great markets, but we're always looking for more. So a couple that people might not think about, uh, Algeria has just kind of come on as a market for U.S. soybeans. They've just kind of built up a crushing industry. They historically were an importer of meal, and the U.S. has had a limited amount of meal available historically. And so uh, they've now started importing beans, which is great. Uh, And and another country that just uh, purchased a cargo recently for shipment is Iraq, you know, a country where the U.S. has had a big influence trying to help uh, bring peace to that country. So it's great to see them now starting to import U.S. soybeans.
1: Obviously, in you know upper Midwest, we're seeing a lot of uh, additional soybean crush capacity, which changes the dynamic a little bit. Meal exports, what uh, what's uh, you know going on there to help try and find uh, markets for uh, that product?
2: Yeah, I, and I think that's particularly exciting for people up in the northern part of the country where they've mainly been a bean exporter previously uh, and, and mainly to one destination off of the Pacific Northwest. So when we talk about diversification, now having meal to export instead of only beans really helps with that diversification. So we think that that there are a lot of markets where that meal will go. Southeast Asia has been traditionally a good market. We think there's more potential there. Japan is a not a huge meal importer, but a solid meal importer. And we haven't really had enough to supply them. A couple shipments have gone to them recently, and we look for more of that to happen. Uh, And then if you think about the America's market, uh, Chile has recently started buying some U.S. meal. Venezuela's come back as a buyer. And then, of course, if you go to go to the other side of the world, uh, Europe is a strong importer of meal. And we think there are companies there that would like to buy more U.S. meal if we have it available. So we're excited about seeing U.S., crush more soybeans, have more meal available, and uh, helping to get that marketed. One thing I should note, though, is we're, we're careful to tell our long-term bean buyers from the U.S. that our studies show that the, the yield of U.S. soy is going to continue to increase enough so that we'll double our meal exports, go from 12 or 13 million tons up to 23, 24 million tons in the next seven or eight years, but we'll still have an, about the same amount of beans to export. So we don't want to lose our bean customers, but we want to increase our meal customers.
1: So I guess, what are some of the challenges, maybe domestically with mar- with shipping meal? I mean, there are going to have to be some infrastructure changes that that are made to, in order to handle that. Obviously, you know, again, as you mentioned, Northwest set set up to yep. handle a lot of whole bean, a little bit different. Is that going to be an issue or something that can be, you know, relatively easily overcome?
2: Well, you know, we ask a lot of questions. We ask questions of the railroad. We ask questions of the companies that are involved. And they all tell us that they've got big plans to uh, add capacity. They're investing in that, so we're watching carefully. Uh, we don't want to take it for granted, but we are told that they've got plans made to be able to handle that. So, fingers crossed. We hope it will work out. You know, uh, I, I suppose uh, snowstorms will get in the way, and those kind of things will cause problems. But I think there are. I think people are really trying to think it through because they understand that there'll be a lot more meal going into the export channels.
1: How important is that farmer perspective and farmer leadership on the organization? Obviously, you have staff around the you know around the world getting the pulse, but you know ultimately bringing it back to kind of the you know, getting getting farmer input. How valuable is that for what you guys are trying to do?
2: Oh, I think it's extremely valuable. You know, the uh, the, the farmers are our our main investors. Our are, our largest uh, funding comes from uh, the checkoffs. Uh, the national and the states, the QSSBs, and uh, and it's critical that we know what they're thinking. We kind of have their viewpoint of the future. Uh, one of the things I feel fortunate in is that we can take a long-term view as we're doing this market development work. When we're investing today in India, uh, India is not going to be a market for tomorrow necessarily, but some years out. And farmers think that way. You know, they make investments on their farms that are long-term investments. So I think that's very fortunate. And I find farmers to be just very practical thinkers. And so I, I really enjoy the opportunity to work with them. And then on the fact that on the USEC board, we have a combination of farmers and exporter and allied member representatives. We ha- well, again, I feel so fortunate to have this great mix of uh, brain power we can utilize on our board to help give us strategic direction. And then we've got our teams around the world that go out and implement based upon that strategic direction.
1: So overall, exciting times, you know, reason for, you know, Minnesota, North to go to South Dakota farmers to be optimistic about putting that seed in the ground that it's going to find a home?
2: I think so. I think the, uh, you know, we just continue to see steady demand growth for protein. Uh, there's always things to worry about. You know, we can worry about the strong dollar. We can worry about, you know, global sort of unrest people want to eat you know and that's the fortunate thing is that we're ultimately in the food production business and then more recently here in the energy production business and I think food and energy are two things that are going to have pretty inelastic demand so I think farmers can uh, can continue to do the great job they're doing and producing their crops in such a good sustainable way which is something people around the world are asking more and more about and I'm so happy we can tell them about what our U.S. farmers are doing.
0: Kerry Siffrith is vice president of the U.S. Grains Council, which promotes the use of U.S. barley, sorghum, corn, and related products, including ethanol and distillers grains. An active time for grain movement. to Folks are very
1: interested in what's happening as far as the movement of you know, corn, sorghum, uh, ethanol, things like that. What is kind of the lay of the land? How are things going in terms of, of movement of those products?
3: Um, well, after two very good, successful years of, of corn exports uh, and even BDGS and ethanol exports, we're, we've had a little bit of a slow start this marketing year. Um, things are starting to pick up. Uh, we're seeing uh, more corn uh, uh, sales and, and even in the vessel lineups um, uh, in the Pacific Northwest area of, of exports where, where they're pulling shuttle trains out of southern and southern western Minnesota and the Dakotas to get out there. So we're seeing business there starting to pick up. Um, for, for those Asia-Pacific markets, um, our, our long-term good market to the south in Mexico, even with the issues, they're still buying corn at a good, uh, a good pace. And so, yeah, we're uh, – and then and even ethanol, we're seeing uh, decent shipments uh, taking place. Um, and our, our number one customer to the north there in Canada continues to be a, a, our top customer and a, a good, steady buyer of U.S. ethanol.
1: Now, you touched on Mexico, obviously, a lot of activity happening there with their proposed ban on GMO products. What kind of an impact is that having, and what could that mean for uh, for movement of those grains?
3: Uh, well, you know, Mexico just reissued a, a new decree, which uh, basically made um, white corn uh, imports uh, with GMO white corn imports into Mexico, uh, basically banning that or at least not allowing white corn imports for use for, for food uh, right away as of... Last week... Or even two weeks ago, I guess now um, yellow corn for feed use is allowed. GMO yellow corn for feed use is allowed um, until they um, come up with a, a reasonable uh, substitute. Which uh, and they don't have a time frame on that. And I don't I'm not sure how they do that. But so the yellow corn for feed use is is flowing. We still have a big market of yellow corn that's going in for um, wet milling for starch and sweeteners and other uh, industrial uses of, of, of corn. That's a little bit up in the air. Um, you know, UST has issued the uh, the, uh, the the request for technical consultations, which puts the, starts the forty five day clock on that for actual consultations to officially take place. Uh, and if we, a resolution isn't found after forty five days, then we can then we can take this to uh, um, to the dispute settlement process of the USMCA agreement. So.
1: No ethanol movement. I understand there's been some good uh, direction towards Japan. Things uh, moving favorably. Talk about those if you would.
3: Um, yeah, and Japan buys uh, ethanol from the U.S. in the form of ETBE, um, so using ethanol instead of methanol in the in ETB rather than MTBE. Um, so the you know th- three three and a half years ago the U.S. U.S. was getting zero of that market share, and our our, our office in, in Tokyo, along with our, our members, worked real hard, so we opened that up, so at least um, 40% of that could come from the U.S. Now we're up to uh, 66% of that. Uh, used to be 100% Brazilian ethanol would come to Houston, be made into MTBE. Now, um, we're, we've been working. We expect Japan to be making an announcement here on, on April 1st, um, and we hope to allow us to... To get one hundred percent of that market doesn't guarantee us, but allows us. We're capped at sixty-six percent market share, but it's even today that's about one hundred twenty million gallons. Of U.S. ethanol going to Japan in the form of ETBE today. Um, if we were to get allowed to do the full 100%, that could be a little over 200 million gallons. Um, and then at the same time, we're working with uh, with Japan to look at direct blending of ethanol rather than just uh, using ETBE. Um, and lots of discussion on, on SAF, sustainable aviation fuel made from ethanol in Japan. Uh, and some of the players there are very very excited about that. So it's it's a big market today. You know about 100. Twenty million gallons annually, and a lot of prospects for that to continue to grow as we tr- try to move towards direct blending and this SAF possibilities in in the you know coming let's say two to four or five years. So
1: now, obviously, for the you know, last number of years, we've had to deal with some uh, transportation. You know, uh, supply chain issues, are things clearing up there? Is that still a concern for Grains Council, or what's that situation?
3: Um, Well, it's always a concern. We're always watching it because, you know, transportation is is key for us to be able to move our products, um, whether it's from southern Minnesota, uh, uh, the Dakotas, to get out to the the west coast, to the Pacific Northwest, um, to get products to the river. You know, this last fall we had very, very low water levels on the river um, that really... uh, constrained barge movement there are still barges moving but extremely high cost uh to move move grain by a barge down the river system obviously up in northern minnesota we're still closed all that where it looks like we're maybe weeks away from that starting over but the water levels you know down in memphis and st louis uh have come back and so we're seeing more regular barge movement there um you know we avoided the rail strike um that was a big concern um i don't know you know that's that 's behind us but i don 't know if the rail all the rail companies are one hundred percent or all their workers are one hundred percent satisfied so that 's something to definitely continue to keep an eye on as well and we have a lot of products that move in by containers um, and so during during in, uh, the covid uh, pandemic and the container availability was really restricted just because of the <clears throat> the desire to get empty containers back out to predominantly China, but other parts of Asia, they didn't care whether they were empty or full. Um, that's kind of, the market's kind of resolved itself, and we're seeing a, a lot of availability of, of containers to get those containers, empty containers back into the Midwest so we can put DDGS, soybean meal, other things, and uh, and get that regular flow of those agricultural products back out to places like Southeast Asia, Korea, Taiwan, um, even products flowing in containers to China as well. So.
1: So no shortage of things for you to keep your uh, your eyes on and your fingers on the pulse.
3: Uh, correct. There's always something going on, and and we're you know we we're, we're looking at you know, what's what's out there in the next ninety days, six months, a year. But at the same time, we develop markets for two, three, five, ten years down the line. So we're you know balancing um, what what are we do in the short term to to help resolve these uh, hiccups, and, and what what are we doing to to develop uh, new markets uh, for you know three, five, ten years down the line.
0: Thanks for listening. Find other podcasts at linderfarmnetwork.com and get your daily farm news and market analysis from your local LFN affiliate.